Well, hello. Again, we are in Mark's gospel. We're in Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. We'll look at a rather lengthy passage. Familiar. A lot of these passages, though, have been very familiar to us, haven't they? But again, a familiar passage. uh, Crowds uh, uh, gathering around Jesus, and then Jesus uh, appointing the 12 disciples. A little theologians, as you listen to this passage, I want you to be thinking about something that's, that uh, I hope would be fun, and that would be building a, a treehouse. Wouldn't that be great? Unless you already have a treehouse in your backyard, but it sounds like fun, right, to have a treehouse. Um, so I want to draw a picture of building uh, that treehouse, but I want the treehouse to be built in a special way. How about, well, let's use this tool to build the treehouse. Let's use tweezers. So build a treehouse in your backyard with uh, tweezers. Not quite the right tool for the job, is it? Sometimes preaching the gospel doesn't feel like not quite the right tool for the job. Well, we're looking at Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 7, but would you first join me in prayer? O Holy Father, how great and majestic you are, and yet still mindful of us speaking to us, making yourself known, doing actually all the heavy lifting, not just speaking, but actually giving us that understanding by your Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for doing this. Do that to us now this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, uh, Mark chapter 3. Let's begin at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, uh, so that all who had diseases passed uh, pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. This is the word of our Lord. I'd like for us as we just think about this passage, these two scenes put together, I'd like for us to be thinking about Jesus' model for responding to crushing crowds. When my family lived in Portland, I would take my kids downtown simply to watch uh, skyscrapers being built. There was all kinds of construction taking place in downtown Portland at that time. 
Uh, along the side of the river, however, the Willamette River, uh, before a uh, skyscraper went up, there would be these massive uh, sheets of metal, uh, 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 bent pieces of metal about the size of the side of a three or four story building. And they would hammer these huge sheets into the ground, uh, presumably to protect against the, the water table encroaching on the foundation of the building. I'm, I'm just assuming. But the tool that's used to install that is huge, massive rectangular hammer banging these plates into the ground. And the noise would ricochet across the city. It was so annoying. But away from the river where they're building skyscrapers, uh, there would be these tools that would just uh, bang in these pillars, and these tools were much smaller. Uh, they were still very, very tall, and they would make a more of a light tapping sound as they're uh, pounding uh, these uh, uh, pillars into the ground that would, uh, I'm assuming, touch the bedrock and serve as an anchor for the building. But the sound was very different a blunt sound that was very loud. You could feel it in your heart. And then a sound of, of, a, of a tool that's just banging in these uh, thinner rods. And uh, that noise wasn't annoying at all. And I would grab my kids and we would sit and we would just watch them uh, pound these metal bars into the ground in preparation for a skyscraper. You know, when we think about uh, the way Jesus wants the crowd to be dealt with, it's not that blasting, loud, triumphant bang of that tool that would push big rectangles of metal into the ground. It's more focused, more deliberate. In fact, when we think about uh, the way that Jesus advances his kingdom... This passage shows us that the advance of the gospel is Jesus meeting crowds with a deliberate action, a precise action, the preaching of his word. And that, I think, is what Mark is trying to show us here in this passage, the way he's arranged things. I mean, look where he begins. He begins with this great crowd in verses 7 through 12. This, by the way, is the first time we run into that expression in Mark's gospel, great crowd. Well, what's so great about it? Well, the crowds come from all over. Notice that the greatness is not so much the size of the crowds, although they're large. The greatness is where the crowds come from. From Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. This is traditional Israel under King David and King Solomon. But also from Idumea to the south, which also would be a part of the territory of King Solomon. But then after the exile, this territory uh, begins to be infiltrated by foreigners, Idumea, between Jerusalem and Egypt. And then in verse 7, from beyond the Jordan, this would be all the way uh, to the east, beyond even the kingdom of David and Solomon. And then also in verse 7, uh, from around Tyre and Sidon to the north, now, these are trade cities, well-known cities, cities that would have an impact uh, on the east through trade across the Mediterranean. And there's a lot of significance in the way Mark describes uh, this great crowd. I mean, he really hits on all points of the compass, doesn't he? North, south, east, west. And he stretches actually beyond the influence of King David and King Solomon and, and certainly beyond the influence of the preaching ministry of John the Baptist. But the most important thing is this. This movement from Galilee to Jerusalem is a movement deep into profoundly Gentile territory. And Mark, he wants us to see that. This awareness of Jesus, it extends beyond Israel. And Mark, remember, he's writing in Rome. 
Mark's letter, I think it's fair to say, is primarily aimed towards Gentiles. And as he writes, a Gentile would, would, would read this, and they might not know uh, where Galilee is, but they certainly would know where Tyre and Sidon is. And here, the, the gospel, it's rolling forward because this great crowd in verse 8 heard all that he was doing, and they came to him from all of these various places. I wonder if Mark wants us to hear echoes of God's covenant with Abraham. Remember what God said to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, one person. And in you, uh, through your son, one particular son, Isaac. Well, who else is hearing about Jesus in this passage? Mark tells us who else. The life and the work of Jesus is noticed actually by the spiritual world. Do you see that there in verse 11? It's not just those who are interested in coming to him, but those who we might suspect are not interested in coming to him at all. They're unclean spirits. They're angels in rebellion. They've already chosen their cause, and their cause is against the cause of God. We might say that these are perhaps those who ought to be, you would expect to be, the least interested in Jesus. They have already rebelled against God the Father. And yet at the same time, uh, they are interested in Jesus, aren't they? You are the Son of God. That's not a profession of faith, mind you. I don't think we should see a wicked angel here being converted. In fact, when this angel says, you are the Son of God, uh, the angel is saying that which is obvious. Well, he understands, just like the wicked angel in Mark 1.24 understood, you are the Holy One of God. But of course, he goes on to say, have you come to destroy us? Jesus, he is being noticed, not just in Galilee and Jerusalem, but beyond the Jordan River, uh, to the north and to the south, and, and, and even across the waters from the cities of Tyre and Sidon. But Jesus, he has, he has been noticed even in the spiritual realm. And when we think about uh, what Mark means by this great uh, crowd, this uh, rushing out of the news of Jesus, uh, Mark then tells us that Jesus does something that we've already seen him do before. Uh, When the paralytic was healed in Mark chapter 2, and in verse 13, we find that Jesus, he withdrew himself after that. Mark wants us to see the severe intensity of the crowd and to know that the crowd is far-ranging, coming from all over the world. And then uh, almost in, uh, in a way that is uh, contradictory, uh, Jesus, in response to that crowd, he, he withdraws to the seaside, even, verse 9, to one single boat. And that's just remarkable, this contrast between enormous crowds and one Jesus, and Jesus then withdrawing from them. But the great crowd, while it's in our imagination, is pushed away by a small crowd that ought to be in our imagination. You know what that small crowd is? Look what Mark does in verses 13 through 19. The crowd would seem innumerable. Well, now it's just 12. We already know, don't we, that Mark, he's not, he's not that interested in uh, uh, arranging all of the accounts of Jesus in a chronological fashion. We've actually already seen a few of these disciples, haven't we? And we've seen the calling of Simon and Andrew brothers. 
You know, but here in this list, their names are separated from one another. And, and Simon here in this list is actually renamed as Peter, likely a reference to a later event. And we've already seen James and John, haven't we? We've seen all four of these uh, called together. James and John, they're the sons of Zebedee. We knew that already. And here they receive the nickname uh, Sons of Thunder. I wonder what that means. Commentators think that it probably refers to uh, something about their temperament. They're hot-headed men, strong-willed men. And we've already seen Levi, haven't we? And here he is in this list named Matthew. And so to those five that we've already seen... Seven more are added. All of them are Jews, but they're still all uh, very uh, diverse uh, economically uh, and politically. It's interesting that there's a a note that someone is a zealot, and zealots were uh, notorious about politics, very, very engaged in what's happening on the political scene. Now, the crowds, crowds can be out of control. We know that. But here, there's very tight control. Jesus is very much in charge of this small crowd, a crowd of just 12. And Mark, he wants us to sense that, a great crowd to just this 12. How do they compare? Why do they even belong together? What's the relationship between these? And the relationship is what Jesus does in his power and authority with the small crowd. Look what he says in verse 13. Jesus, he goes up to a mountain, almost as if he's seeking privacy, but there's more that's about to happen. And then he calls to himself those whom he desired. Does that expression stand out to you? When we think about uh, desire, we think about um, uh, emotions, don't we? Uh, 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 Affection. But here, it's probably not emotion as much as it's a communication of a very strong will, a very deliberate will. This is Jesus in control. It was his will to have these 12. And we see that, don't we, as the passage goes along, uh, the details that Mark gives us for what's happening on this mountain. In verse 14, Mark tells us that Jesus specifically anointed them. Well, that's a funny word. And in fact, translators aren't sure what exactly to do with the word. The word uh, sounds really religiously significant here, doesn't it? Anoint, uh, 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 appointed. But actually, the word simply means to make. To make. It's a very common word. But it just sounds strange to say that that Jesus specifically makes these people. It may be that when Jesus appoints them, Jesus is actually giving them their primary identity. He's defining them the way uh, an artist would make something, give a thing its definition. And so he appoints them. And then he also gives them names. He gives them all one single name. Do you love that or dislike that? We've just seen a list, or we're about to see a list of names. But really, Jesus' name for them is Apostle. And the word was already uh, in use in the Greek language. I mean, it simply means a, a follower. But really what he's saying is he's saying these people's name is with him. I belong to him. The first, uh, the first time Christians are called uh, Christians, uh, they're called Christians because they are little Christ ones. They belong to this one who's called the Christ. That's what a Christian is. And when he calls them apostles, he's saying, they belong to me. They are with me. They follow me. 
and all that that implies. And then uh, there's a shift. If you'll see uh, Mark's description, he brings them to himself, but, but he brings them to himself only that he might then shove them away. He says in verse 14 that he sends them out. He has the authority to not only uh, appoint them, to make them, to draw them to himself, but he also has the authority to command them. And so he sends them. Where do you think he sends them? What have we just been shown? A great crowd. Jesus, he takes these 12 and he sends them back out into the crowd. Isn't that a beautiful image of the church? She's so small. And yet, she's sent out into a massive crowd, the crowd of the watching world. But that's not all. At Jesus, in verse 14, he sends them out to preach. And the word that's used there is the strongest word for preaching. He sends them out to uh, be heralds, to shout loudly into the world. Not their own message, of course, but the message of Jesus. And he also gives them authority to cast out demons. Isn't that wonderful? The demons, they're responding to Jesus. And he gives his disciples the authority to shut them up just as he shuts them up and to send them out just as he sends them out. Well, what we've been told so far then is that the crowd, the crowd hears what Jesus is doing. We know that. The crowd hears what Jesus is doing. But it's not enough, is it? Jesus doesn't believe that that's enough. As if just if his reputation goes out, that will be enough. If his message, if his life goes viral, that's enough. It's enough for us. In fact, even hoped for by some of us. But it's not enough for Jesus. You see, Jesus is not going to be defined simply by being known. He's going to define himself at every step of the way in Mark's gospel. Haven't we seen that? That Jesus, in small ways, showing that he is in control of how the message of the gospel is unflurled upon the world. And he will define himself. And so he calls these disciples from a mountaintop, calls them, and they come up to him, and he gives them their identity as followers of Jesus. And he not only sends them out, but he empowers them to be sent out so that they would have a mission of preaching and asserting authority over the spiritual world. What a remarkable image this is. The advance of the gospel is Jesus meeting the crowds with the deliberate preaching of his word. Jesus is going to choose these 12, and he's going to give them very tight instructions, and he's going to send them out into the crowd. You see, that's not a massive, blunt instrument that bangs in steel panels to hold back the river, is it? It's an instrument that, that, that bangs almost like a ball-peen hammer, pushing something very slowly into the ground until it touches bedrock. But if we're honest, and if we reflect just generally upon the Old Testament, we see even more imagery here in this ministry of sending the small out into the great crowd. This is the imagery of Moses, isn't it? God says uh, to Abraham, no longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, the father of a multitude. I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. One man 
But look what God says to Moses. Uh, Moses, uh, uh, God tells Moses, uh, I, that uh, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This small number of people coming out of Egypt, God is going to use to, to infect, as it were, the entire world. And God gives words to Moses and tells Moses, you will speak these words. God works through this family to do what? To build a kingdom, a kingdom of priests, a holy nations through one single family. This is how God works. And we could even think, uh, even though uh, there's a Jesus standing upon a mountain, as Moses did, as he was drawn up to receive God's word and to proclaim that word. But we also have a picture here of creation. Adam and Eve, they weren't meant to simply live in the garden to enjoy the presence of God. They were actually given tasks. They were to work the garden. They were to listen to God's word, to follow God's word, to obey God. And they were to multiply. They were not to be just their, their own priests in this garden. They were actually to multiply so that they might be the first of many priests. And it's as if the hedgerows of God's special garden are uh, extended by these two people over time. God working through a family to build a kingdom of priests. And we see that picture here. In fact, the crowds become so big in verse 20 that Jesus went home and the crowds gathered again so that Jesus and his disciples could not even eat. Just think about that. The crowds are massive. But there doesn't seem to be quite enough provision for what needs to take place to deal with the crowds. There needs to be a strong, blunt instrument to go out into the crowds and, and accomplish God's will in large chunks. But that's not what Jesus does. In fact, uh, we uh, find at the very end of the passage in verse 21, I think, the key to the application. You know, at the end of a passage isn't always where we find application. But look with me at verse 21. It's a very unique passage. When his family, literally, me, literally it means when those of him, when those of him heard it, they went out to seize him, to bind him. And they're saying this, he is out of his mind. And that phrase is actually very graphic. Think about that. People who are close to Jesus are not buying the model. There's something about what's happening that doesn't make sense. I want you to jump forward and think about where we live right now. Of course, given the pandemic, we're not often around big crowds of people, are we? But this passage, it opens with a great crowd. And this great crowd uh, is uh, almost suffocating Jesus. The great crowd presses around him. The great crowd is about to crush him. He's being suffocated by humanity. I wonder if sometimes as Christians we feel that. Uh, certainly the, the great cultural shifts that we've noticed in the past couple of decades. Uh, do we feel as though we're being more deeply marginalized as Christians than ever before? And we can feel oppressed and crushed by the world, smaller and smaller, less and less significant. And we may be tempted to withdraw to the seaside or to withdraw to a mountaintop. Doesn't that sound nice? Or we might actually be tempted to do the opposite and to push back forcefully, loudly, almost as if we're dull instruments 
pushing back that which seems to be suffocating us. But what Jesus is doing in this passage, and I think on the forefront of Mark's mind, Jesus is pushing back with precision a very small instrument that looks so humble, that even looks pathetic given the great crowd. And this small instrument moves slowly. It goes out into the crowd. And not just being well-known and defined, Jesus actually wants to, well, he wants to define himself. And these small individuals go out into the world carefully defining who Jesus is through the preaching of Jesus' own word. But it's where he directs his followers, and this is where he promises his authority, this slow, lumbering work. I wonder if we especially feel that now as Christians. Things have gotten so bad in our world that uh, really, if the church is going to advance, if there's going to be an increasing number of those who uh, profess faith in Jesus, if the church is going to be heard at all, well, it's going, to, it's going to take that big, loud, blunt instrument going out and leaving massive footprints in the earth. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus is directing his followers and he's making promises to his followers. But the direction and the promise has to do with the message, with the word. The advance of the gospel is Jesus meeting the crowds, not with a blunt instrument, but with the deliberate preaching of his word. I think it's important for us to notice that because verse 21, it may not be as unnatural as it sounds because it sounds very unnatural. But perhaps we ought to start where our own heart is. Are, are we the ones vocalizing verse 21 as our culture shifts? Are we the ones thinking that Christianity no longer works, that Christianity needs to be retooled, that it needs to be uh, flattened uh, on the leading edge, that it might hit and hurt more? But Jesus' promises are not associated with that. Jesus' promises are associated with us going out into the world and looking for opportunities to tell the story of Jesus. And yes, indeed, we ought to feel that this is crazy, but it isn't. This is how the kingdom advances. Through 12 men going out into the world, through you and I going out into the world. It seems insignificant, and it'll feel insignificant, but this is the small crowd expanding the kingdom and the reign of Jesus in that great, dangerous crowd. Well, would you join me in prayer? God, we ask that that work of the gospel would be a work that we see. We ask that you would enable us to take advantage of opportunities to tell people about Jesus, the message of salvation. And we pray that as a church, that we would see uh, slowly, for sure, that we would see people uh, come to be a part of this church who have only just heard of the gospel recently. And we pray that they would find a home here and that they would testify to others. Yes, it just took one person to tell me about Jesus and my life, my life was utterly different. Father, we ask that you would show us that more and more. To the glory of Jesus, our King. Amen.